Well, as you grab a seat, let's dive right into it. Why don't you grab your Bibles and we're going to open up Daniel 7. And we're starting a brand new series today and I'm thrilled to be with you, whether you're joining us online or in person. And, you know, we're going to cover over the next six weeks a topic that, you know, frequently isn't talked about much at church, uh, sadly. And to get there, I can't, you know, just pop it on you. Uh, we got to kind of mosey on in to the series and uh, mosey on in, Ron, is that a good phrase for you? Mosey, that's a good, that's a good, mosey, that's a good word. So uh, if you can imagine this, we're going we're to get to the front porch and then we're going to go through the door into the series, into the house. Yeah, porch, okay. So this is the porch. So Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and that's on page, yes, it's right up there, Ron, on the screen. We got that for you. Yes, right up there. So 724, Pew Bibles, that red book. I want to remind you, if you don't own a Bible, take that with you. It's not stealing. We just gave it to you. We can replace it as quickly as you take it home. Uh, it's red because we want it to be red and not sit in the pews all week. And we want it to be open in your life and speak in truth and hope and love so that you could awake to the reality of this amazing God. And let me read for us Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And let's begin. This is Daniel writing, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, side note, some translations say, one like the son of man, remember that, I saw one like a human being coming into the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. Okay, we're going to mosey a little bit longer on the porch than we did in the 830. Why don't you flip to Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 13. It's the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation, not Revelations, plural. Got that wrong for like 30 years of my life. Uh, it's, a, it's a singular revelation that God gave a man named John. Same image here, same picture. It's all given to the writers of Scripture by God through God's Spirit. Verse 7, Revelation 1. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. Verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. So there's this phrase that we first see in Daniel. We ultimately see in Revelation. The Son of Man is a title given to one whom which God gives authority to rule over all the nations. And 2,000 years ago, there was a man from Nazareth named Jesus he was not just a teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. Uh, he wasn't just one that lived this great life. No, he actually, he took that title, the Son of Man, and he, and he lived into that. In fact, he referenced that, that title, the Son of Man. He referenced it to himself, and he did so without arrogance, without pride, without a, a shred of misunderstanding that title or who he was, because he is and he was that one. God in the flesh, fully human, yet fully God, of which God gives all authority and dominion to rule for all eternity. 
So Daniel has this vision. John has this vision of this thing that's going to happen in the future. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, there were three recorded statements in the Gospels. Now, when I say Gospels, that's in reference to four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were four individuals that that were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. They saw how he lived, how he loved, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, they wrote down what they saw, what they experienced. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of those four, there are three recorded the Son of Man statements. Now hang with me here. This is essential. We're, we're, We're still on the porch here, okay? Hang with me on the porch. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he came to do. That was his mission. You could see throughout all of Jesus' life, he didn't go around saying, serve me, worship me, do all the things for me. No, he lived a life that was selfless. He served everywhere he went. As Philippians 2 says, ultimately to the point of death on a cross, serving all of humanity to reconcile us through the the payment of his blood on the cross, that ultimate sacrifice that we don't have to earn God's love anymore, that through faith and trust in Jesus, we can have a right relationship with God. He came to serve. That's what he came to do. But he also said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the, the lost. That's another thing that he came to do, what he came to do. And he wasn't just hanging out with the, the up and in. He was also hanging out with the down and out. He wasn't just hanging out with those in the center of society. He went to the margins of society. And he, he actually, he redefined lostness. And you only have to read the parable of the prodigal son to realize that you can show up to church and do all this religious activity and be just as lost as somebody who's running away from God the Father. You see, sometimes we can be so focused on doing things for God that we miss out on that relationship with him that out of that relationship flows a life of doing. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. But the third son of man statement isn't what he came to do, it's how he came to do it. This, this, this phrase that we'll end with in a moment describes his strategy, his methodology for how he came to serve and how he came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't say the Son of Man came preaching. He didn't say that was his strategy. He didn't say the Son of Man came planting churches. Uh, He didn't say the Son of Man came to build an app that we can get out to the rest of the world. No. Uh, He didn't say the Son of Man came to pass out flyers. No. And we've got to understand this this third way that he describes the Son of Man himself because in John 21.20, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you as my people, as the church. So we've got to understand how Jesus serves and how he seeks and saves the lost because that's the very call that we have in our lives. How does he want us to go? Well, this is the door. Uh, I want us to reach out. I want us to grab a a doorknob, and I want us to turn it, and I want us to step through it. Why don't we go to Luke 7, 34. This is that third statement. This is Jesus' methodology. It's on page. Wow, 839 right there. Luke 7, 34. This is how. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, how he came to serve, how he sends us out. 
This is the doorway that we're going to step in through for the next six weeks of our Lent series together. Luke 7.34, Jesus says this, The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. Can I get an amen? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let me first say this. This was Jesus' strategy to serve. This was Jesus' methodology to seeking to save the lost at a table over a long, drawn-out, lingering meal. And he doesn't say, I am a glutton and a drunkard. He says, no, look, you say, you are observing my life as I serve, as I seek and to save the lost. You say that I'm a glutton and I'm a drunkard. Definition here, a glutton is somebody that eats too much. A drunkard is somebody that drinks too much. So people had this perception that he overdid it. Would you like another helping Jesus? Yes. Would you like another glass, pitcher? Yes. And yet at the same time, Jesus, the very Son of God, lived the perfect life. He was without sin. He was tempted in every way that we were. He never overdid it. Uh, he didn't go to uh, food or drink to be his refuge, to be his counselor, uh, to be his security. And yet there was this perception that he was a party animal. It was as if he went around just celebrating and inviting people into it. And yet he never was a glutton, never was a drunkard. And people had no idea what to do with them. And what we're going to do over the next six weeks, we're going to take a look at how Jesus ate and drank. And we're going to take a look at what happens at the table when Jesus is hosting that table. And I'm telling you, as we go through this series, this series is not going to be empty calories. Maybe some of you are thinking, what? We're going to do a, what? We're in church and we're talking about food and drink and meals. What kind of place is this? Let me say this. As a church, we long to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. You might ask me, okay, where should I start? Here's an answer. Let's start with your meals. How many of you thought I was going to say that? You were, well, I guess because we're in a series called Meals with Jesus. And <laughs> you're always, yes, I know, okay. Got my number. There you just know exactly where I'm going. But think about that for a moment. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me show you something. Uh, in the gospel according to Luke, uh, Jesus is so frequently at the table. Listen to this. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. Then in Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Then in Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then in Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Then in Luke 11, see a pattern here? Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor, not their friends, to the meal. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ is a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Robert Karras, who's a biblical scholar, says this, in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal 
at a meal or he just left a meal. I love it. Think about it this way. Where was Jesus' first miracle? At a wedding. He didn't like uh, turn rocks into chairs for the guests. He could have done that. Uh, you know, he didn't like up the ante to make the music better. He turned water into wine. His first miracle. And he wasn't cutting corners to have a profit on that wine. It was, it was uh, experiences, the best wine they had ever tasted. What was the last thing Jesus did before his arrest? It was a, it was a, a meal. Uh, after Jesus is resurrected from the grave, he appears to the disciples. Imagine this, they're in a, they're in a locked room in fear that they would be arrested and be crucified as well. And all of a sudden he appears. This is his resurrection body. He is fully spirit, fully physical. And so somehow he, he is able to go through, somehow he's able to appear without going through the door. He appears and they're terrified. And the first thing he says, do not be afraid. And what's the second thing he says? I'm hungry. <laughs> Amen. What do they do? They give him a piece of fish. What does he do? He eats it. He's not cast with a ghost. It doesn't hit the floor. He digests it. In the book of Isaiah, there's a picture of what life is going to be like in heaven in God's presence. I used to think as a kid that we were going to be up on the clouds, you know, you know, playing the harp like angels' wings. That's all I thought it was. That was Hallmark. That's not the Bible, okay? What the Bible says, one of the things, Isaiah 25 says, look, God is going to prepare on this mountaintop a feast for his people of the best food. And there's going to be rejoicing and the tears will be wiped away and the shroud that covers humanity will be lifted. It's remarkable to consider that Jesus, the way that he serves and the way that he seeks and saves the lost is so so common as a meal. And I would say, especially as Americans, especially as, as people that live in, in, in 2018, that our rhythm of meals is so out of sync with the rhythm of following Jesus that we need to bridge the gap. That if we want to follow Jesus better, if we want to be part of the revival and renewal of people and neighborhoods and cities, it can begin at our meals. But we've got this weird kind of messed up relationship with food. Uh, we're told you are what you? Really? And we also live in a culture right now that uh, we've turned food into, it, you know, it's, just, it's fuel and it's all about us. And, you know, we want things that are out of season all season long. So we're willing to pay extra dollars to fly in, you know, like huckleberries and blueberries from like chili. Huckle Is that a real thing, huckleberries? We, uh, it sounds good. I don't know. I'm sure some of you have, you know. We fly it in from chili and, you know, it, it's just this world that we live in where we're at the center of our food universe, and right now, did you know that a third of all the food that is produced in the world goes to waste? Did you know that the average uh, American household, whether we scrape the food into the trash or we forget about it in the cupboard or the, the fridge and it goes to waste and we discover this thing that we bought 15 years ago, and why did I buy 30 gallons of pickles 
and we got to throw it away. The average American household throws away $2,000 worth of food every year. Did you know that uh, right now uh, we are spending uh, $50 billion a year on our overeating problem as a nation? For the first time in human history, uh, more people are dying from ailments related to overeating than ailments from undereating. Uh, we spend more money on dieting than caring for the malnourished and the underfed around the world. We've got celebrity chefs. Uh, we've got books that are, uh, you know, national bestsellers that are cookbooks. And yet less people are cooking in America than have ever cooked. Uh, we have the nicest kitchens than we've ever had before. But they're for looking at. <laughs> Not for using. I went over to a friend's house a couple years ago and I saw this thing on the countertop. And I'm like, what is that? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> don't know. But, you know, the so-and-so had it and, you know, we had to get it. And I'm like, well, what does it do? He said, I don't know. <laughs> but it was expensive. But it looks great. I'm like, it does look great. I want one. You know? <laughs> It's this, we have this weird, broken thing. Comfort food. Uh, we, you know, we, we try to find uh, comfort in the bottom of a, a glass, and we're unwilling to look at the bottomless well of comfort that comes from our Savior. You know, we, we're eating alone more than we've ever ate before. And Jesus says, church, humanity, this thing that you do every day, actually this thing that you have to do to survive, this thing that the world does, I've created you for. And actually that, that, that thing can be the spark for a thriving life and a, a vibrant relationship, not only with me, but with people, with neighbors, with everybody you come into contact with. How many of you have seen Downton Abbey, that show that, uh, you know how there's like the upstairs and the downstairs? Uh, wh where would Jesus be eating? Down in the kitchen? It was interesting. I asked this the same question at 8.30. Everyone's like, downstairs. Well, that's true. But he'd also be eating upstairs too. When you look at the life of Jesus, if you've read the gospel accounts, he ate with those on the margins of society, and he ate with the very wealthy. He invited himself over for dinner. He accepted invitations. There was people in the culture that would come in from out of the street, and he, he allowed them to be there at the table with him, and they, people were freaking out. Because one of the best ways to segregate people is to do so at the table. And it was happening in the first century... It was happening legally in our country till a few decades prior. And yet in practice, we still do it. We invite friends. We invite those just like us. And we are so missing this vibrancy of life that Jesus invites us into. He says, I want to take your eating. I want to take your drinking. And I want to use it for my glory, for my hope, for my peace, for my joy. This isn't all about you, but it's a thoroughfare through those meals to people in your life. I truly believe that if we were a church that ate and drank like Jesus, we would begin to see more of the revival and renewal in our 
friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our neighbors, our city. It would happen. Where would Jesus be if he was at the Olympics? Any of you watching that over the last couple of days? I am obsessed with curling, you know, just the, <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I cannot stretch that much. It's amazing. I love it. I can't get enough of it. And I think, where would Jesus be? Would he be watching this? Would he be watching that? I think he'd be in the Olympic Village, eating with the nations, kimchi and rice and who knows what else been flown in from all over the world, he would, he would, he'd be sharing a meal with somebody else. I'm so thrilled that we're going to walk through this journey together over the next six weeks. We're going to do so in our Sunday services. Uh, if you're not part of a life group, I believe, is it, is it too late? To, you can still sign up. There's still room. We've had so many people over at our homes. And what's going to be amazing about this experience that right after the service in our narthex, it's a great word for right outside, before you get out in the sun. Um, <laughs> You can sign up to be part of one of those groups in your neighborhoods. And, and we long that you would just show up and you would share a meal. You would go through, I love how cute their little menus that you can go through with conversation starters and scripture. And, you know, some of you are like, I want to go deep. I want the Greek language and I want to parse this out. Sometimes that can get in the way of the thing that God calls you to and it's just to be together. Did you know the word companion? is two Latin words crushed together, cum, which is together, panis, which is bread. A companion is somebody that breads together. Jesus knew the way to humanity's heart was through a meal. And he meets us there. And you've had an opportunity in those life groups to meet one another, to sit at the same level, to to grow together, to pray for each other, to encourage one another. If you're not part of a group, I highly encourage you to do that. And you know, ladies, that Monday night Bible study that starts off tomorrow night, I'm going to help kick it off with the group. It's a room full of life groups, tables in a room that you can share a meal and you can grow through that together. We also have a book that we're uh, kind of pacing with. I, I highly encourage you to get it. It's for sale in our parable coffee shops. Have we sold out? Do we sell out? Okay, well, go to Smile Amazon, you know, proceeds. You can go to, it's sold out on Amazon. Beller Church has officially taken all the books in, on the face of the planet. <laughs> Have we really? Tim Chester, we should write him a note and say, you're welcome, Tim. <laughs> Tim, come on out and, you know, celebrate with us. Okay, so, well, here's the nice thing. You don't have to have this <laughs> to do it. But what you can do is you can share it. You can show up, you can read it together, you can read to each other. How nice would that be? But really, it's that, that list of menu items that we're going to go through. But listen to this. Here's just some of the, the things that we're going to do ahead. I'm not preaching out of the book, I'm preaching out of Scripture. But next, we're going to talk a look at grace at the table. You see, for Jesus, the meals weren't just about what was for dinner or breakfast. There was grace at the table. There was community at the table. There was hope at the table. Mission at the table. Salvation at the table. Promise at the table. Better, we live in a culture that is longing for these things. 
And you're going to be challenged in this series, by the way. You know, the when, the where, the what, the why, the how, the who. Let me just start with the who, just briefly today. I want to challenge you in who you're sharing meals with. Ultimately, we should be opening up our homes, our apartments, uh, our cubicles, uh, where we go to lunch on our break, you know, at work. We should be opening up to not just people like us, but we should be opening up to people very much unlike us, that we should be opening up to, to those we come into contact with. Even Jesus says, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks, is don't just, when you have a birthday, don't just invite your friends. Go to the highways, the byways, and invite those that are on the margins, those that are hurting, those that are hopeless. Invite them in your home. But even if you eat alone, which, by the way, as I said before, I'll repeat it, Americans eat alone more frequently than any other country at any point in human history. But I want to challenge you that when even you are alone, you can still have a meal with Jesus to not be in such a rush to scarf it down, to do it while you're watching TV on the go, but to be able to just first start off and say, Jesus, thank you. This meal that you give me, this thing that gives me life, ultimately you are the ultimate giver of life to begin with that. And maybe even to consider thinking about the people that enable that food to get to your place and to share the meal with them in your heart and your mind through prayer. God, thank you for the hands that pick this broccoli. Maybe if you don't eat broccoli, the, you know, the rice and the people that package it, all the people that were part of the process that brought it to my plate. God, I thank you for them. I have no idea what the conditions are that they work in, but I want to pray for them. Would you protect them? Would you guide them? You see, you can have a meal with so many others even when you're alone. And we're going to talk about why we eat and how distorted it is. And we're going to ask Christ to, to move our hearts back to the ultimate why. Uh, we're going to talk about what we eat during these six weeks. And actually that we have distorted it in such a way that we're missing this God-given opportunity to align God's gifts of creation, to incorporate it into our lives. When all, we're, going to, we're going to be challenged in all these ways. But this is just a dip in the toe. Mix some metaphors here. We meandered. I love how my doctoral advisor would end every class. He would say, class, six, seven, look like Gandalf, long white hair, booming baritone voice. And he'd say, class, what's the first command of Scripture? And we would say, uh, don't eat from that tree. Said, That's not the first command. The first command is eat freely from all the trees in the garden that I've given you. But from that tree, don't eat. But the first command is eat freely. God says to the first humans, what's the last command in Scripture from God? Now, John says, don't add anything. That's his addition to it. But, but this command that comes from God is this. You can find it in Revelation 21. Drink freely from the river of life. All who are thirsty, come, drink freely. So, if the bookends of Scripture is an invitation to eat and drink freely, then everything in between is the banquet table of God's Word that we can feast on the rest of our lives. You know the word meditate, hagah? It's a Hebrew word. Let me hear you say hagah. Uh, the word meditate, it literally gives this image of a lion circling its prey, growling and devouring God's Word. 
Some scripture talks about chewing on scripture. Some scripture talks about eating scripture. It's not only how we approach scripture, but it's how we approach life because Jesus wasn't about just ideas and thoughts. He, in a very real and gritty way, a very human way, in a world that so wants to know what you stand for. What do you stand for? What do you stand for? What do you stand for? He says, here's who I'm going to sit with. I want to be known for who I sit with and share a meal with. And out of that flow the truth and the grace and the love and the mercy and even the, the hard challenge of a life that God invites us into. Let's pray. Loving God, as we begin this series together, as we consider this, maybe for some, kind of this odd topic, God, would you start in our hearts and would you help us to see that maybe we've forgotten something so essential, such a staple of the human existence, that even in that, that God, your enemy has deterred us, distorted us away from what it means to share a meal with you, what it means to share a meal with another. So God, as we in a bit leave here today, I pray that we would just begin our next meal, practical next step, God, that we would just begin our next meal saying, God, thank you. None of this would be here without you, and those people that brought it through their work, through their cultivation, through their harvesting, through their packaging, through their delivery to my plate. Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name we pray and we sit together. Amen. Amen.